Father, we do again give you thanks and praise for the fact that we are even in our building. And thank you, Father, for the way you have been with us as a ministry. And now I pray, Father, by your Holy Spirit's power, that you would help me to relax, to speak clearly, and help us all to listen, to be changed. And Lord, may we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I thought after the celebration of America's independence, it would be good to talk about uh, the person who, without a shadow of a doubt, is clearly the single most influential American Christian of all time, or so far, I should say. A man by the name of D.L. Moody. Now, there's several reasons why he is considered the most influential American Christian of all time. The first would be your experience this morning. Most American and most churches like this one start with a handful of hymns, have uh, some sort of special along the point of the service, most of the time right before the message, and usually a song of invitation at the end. That was all brought about by Moody. Church wasn't done that way before him. Uh, the Sunday morning service being the considered the, the primary service of a, of a church week, the one where the members should do their best to get there, that, uh, that is an influence that came from Moody. The way Christian education has been shaped for the last hundred years is because of D.L. Moody. Sunday school, pastor's conferences, books, uh, Christian book publishing, all was changed by the way that things were done by D.L. Moody. And Moody is a big reason why American Protestant Christians are primarily known, as you hear on the news, as evangelicals. Now, as you heard me read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, the idea here is about glorying. Or another word we could use, maybe you have this in your translation, is to boast, to be proud. Now, the theme here is in 1 Corinthians is that the people here are quite proud, they're quite boastful about themselves. The Corinthians thought themselves rather special. They were considered extremely gifted. They had some of the best orators. Their, their pastor was, uh, was, was one with a silver tongue. They were blessed with all sort of uh, all sorts of spiritual blessings. They were quite a, a from what we can understand, quite a, a wealthy church. In fact, they thought themselves so special, they had begun to question whether or not the Apostle Paul was even an apostle, because he clearly was not as blessed and as gifted as they were. So what follows here is a letter to a self-boasting people with an intention of moving them from being a self-boasting people to what we read in our verse this morning, those who glory in the Lord. So using the life of D.L. Moody, what I want to show you this morning is exactly how God accomplishes this in our lives. How does he move us from being a self-boasting, proud people to being the kind of people who glory in the Lord. Three points for you this morning. Number one, 
If he's going to move us from being a self-boasting people to, to a people who glorify God, number one, God has to confront our desire to self-boast. God will confront our desire to self-boast. I want you to note the phrase here in verse 31, He that glorieth. If you want to think about it this way, the Bible is saying, Since you're going to boast, since you're going to glory, Here is what you should boast in. Here is what you should glory in. Now there's a connection here all the way back in verse 22 of chapter 1. Where the apostle tells us that Jews like to boast in signs. They like to glory in miracles. They're always on the lookout for supernatural supernatural phenomenon like blood moons. They would like to interact with angels. That's what they brag about. They, they brag about being able to predict the future. They want prophets who can predict the future. So if they have one, that's what they're going to glory in. That's what they're going to boast about if they have one of these experiences. But then we're told the Greeks, which is really just a term that describes anybody who isn't Jewish, they like to glory or boast in wisdom. They want to be the smartest guy in the room. Or at least they want to know the smartest guy in the room. They want their pastors and leaders to all have advanced degrees. They want anybody who's going to serve perhaps like as a deacon or a Sunday school teacher. They've got to have advanced degrees. So they're very uh, driven by the idea that they know something. They boast in being smart or having knowledge in fact, if you notice in the book of Acts, when Paul goes to, uh, to Athens, we're told that one of the things they used to just sit around and do is find out if they knew everything. Have you heard anything new? Is there any new philosophy or any sort of wisdom from somewhere? And if you think about that, it really kind of describes all of us, doesn't it? Some of us are very boastful about the kind of experiences we've had. Some of us are very boastful about the things that we know. And so we have this natural tendency to find a reason to boast in ourselves. Now, God put that urge in you. The urge, not the urge to boast in yourself, but the urge to boast, to be a part of something great. You you have a desire to be attached, at least, to greatness. But the problem is, is, as I said, is we have a tendency to boast not in God, but in ourselves. So here's how he confronts us in verses 19 to 21. He's going to confront us, first of all, by taking away the things that we find to be wisdom. So what he's going to do is, we'd like to, we usually put it this way, right? God has a tendency to take away our best laid plans. This is how he confronts our tendency to boast in ourselves. He's going to take those things away. But he does something else. What he does is he puts before us roads or paths or ideas that have all the appearance of foolishness. So this is what he does. He takes away the direction we thought we were supposed to go. And he puts before us perhaps the most absurd direction. All for the purpose of teaching us to boast in him. Now D.L. Moody is perhaps the perfect illustration of God coming from the direction of the absurd. Moody, 
again, the single most influential Christian in America, was in every sense of the word a hillbilly. Literally. He grew up or was born on the side of a hill in Massachusetts. The land he lived on was rocky, had few nutrients, was perhaps the cheapest property in the area. His father drank. His mother thought all Christians were hypocrites. They had a horse, a cow, some chickens, and a garden. They were always very poor. Moody himself and the rest of his brothers and sisters, very little education. When his father died, the family almost froze to death the first winter due to the fact that their father never prepared for the winter, and so they were out of wood for heat. But even after his conversion later in life, this background would come out. For all of his adult life, he looked like a member of Duck Dynasty. You go and look at his letters and sermons, and you find all manner of grammatical errors, punctuation in the wrong spot, Random words capitalized. His wife, who loved him dearly, would talk about the fact that uh, he wasn't always sure of polite customs, how to behave, what kind of social etiquette to have, perhaps even at the dinner table. Again, this is the man who completely reshaped Christian education for 100 years. Moody had a tendency to let things come out of his mouth that should not have, often to hilarious results. And every young pastor wanted to be just like him. Now you take all of that, and you consider the impact he had on people we would consider better men. In fact, President Woodrow Wilson would tell the story of meeting him, except he didn't realize it. He'd heard about the great D.L. Moody, but he was in Washington, D.C. He went to a barber shop and sat down about 15 years before he became president of the United States. And he noted that a very rough-looking man walked into the barber shop, sat next to him in a chair. And he said, by the time the man left, he said, we were all thinking of heaven and no longer thought ourselves in a barber shop, but at a worship service. God confronts our self-boasting. Number two, God reveals, in order to move us from being a self-boasting people to a people who glory in him, God reveals his sovereignty and superiority. We come to the second part of the verse. He says, let him glory in the Lord. And the argument that the Apostle Paul is making here, again, these are Corinthians who thought themselves having the greatest blessings and the greatest giftedness, he says, if you're going to glory, let him glory in the Lord. And the argument he's making is when you glory in the Lord, you actually find something superior. Note with me in the verse 25 of chapter 1, the Bible says, if God were to reduce himself to the most foolish, he would still be smarter and wiser than all of humanity. That means that glorying in God brings you to a wisdom that is wiser, to a place of intelligence that is smarter, to a knowledge that cannot be obtained by human skill or effort. And so those who boast in being the smartest guy in the room or those who boast in being attached to the smartest guy in the room 
are glorying after something that is inferior to the wisdom of God. But verse 25 tells us something else. That if God were to reduce himself to being as weak as possible, he would still be stronger than all men. I want you to think about it this way. If God took away all the miracles, if he took all the pleasurable things that he's given us, like eating bacon, there would still be more to God than there would be to the most handsome man on the planet. There'd be more to God than the most gifted singer. There'd be more to God than the most delicious meal. You see, when we glory in the Lord, we come to the height of worship, to the great human experience. And so those who are looking for blood moons or wanting to speak with angels or having these supernatural experiences, they're actually desiring something that is inferior to the experience of knowing God. So, God shows his superiority. But it's not just his superiority, it's also his sovereignty. Verses 26 to 28. What do we see here? We see God choosing the foolish. God choosing those at the bottom of the social ladder. God choosing the, the, those of the most impossible. So we see God choosing, choosing, choosing. And then we're reminded that he is the one that calls. We're asked here in the text to to look around you in the church this morning. Look to see who he's called. And find that he has called very few of the smartest people. He's called very few of the strongest or the most handsome. Very few of the rich. And if you look down the halls of redemptive history, what do you find? You find that God has called the guy or the girl with the C average. The guy and the girl who was packed, uh, picked last for dodgeball. The guy or the girl who nobody thought would amount to very much. This is God's way of revealing his sovereignty. He's the one in control. Now one of the things you read about when you read about Moody's life is that God's sovereignty was also clear to him primarily by the fact that it always seemed the right person would come along at the right time in his life. He talks about how he, he was shown grace, he, he, he experienced grace from Christians long before he understood what that word meant and long before he knew the grace of God for himself. He talked about a school teacher. Again, Moody rarely went to school. But one day he went and he broke the rules. The teacher asked to see him after class and he said he remembers being out front of the the one-room schoolhouse telling his friends, if she dares whip me, there's going to be problems. So he goes in and he said his teacher sat next to him and she said, I love you. I love all you boys. And she began to cry. And she said to Moody, she said, if I can't teach you without having to whip you, I'll resign. Moody said it so moved him that he looked at his teacher and said, if any of those boys ever get out of line, I'll whip them. He remembers going to Sunday school. One of the rare times he was in church. Went to a Sunday school class for teenage boys. 
Teacher said to the boys, turn to the book of Mark. Teacher handed Moody a Bible. Moody had no idea where Mark was. The teacher realized that without saying a word, without making it obvious, he slipped a Bible to Moody with it already open, saving him from feeling embarrassed. Time and time again, God showed himself as a sovereign part of Moody's life. But Moody also saw God as the greater source of wisdom and the greater experience he would have to when, after becoming a young believer, he moved to the city of Chicago. There, at the time, he was surrounded then by saloons and casinos and thousands of prostitutes. Yet, in his letters to his mom, it took him six days to find a church. He stayed sober. He was frugal. Because he said to his mom that God had something to offer so much greater than the Chicago nightlife. But temptation didn't come just in the form of vices. So he became faithful to this little church outside of Chicago, and they noticed this young man who was faithful to their church, and they asked him to be, and I, I wondered, Tom, if we should have some of these. They, they made him a Sunday school recruiter. Gave him the task of filling one pew for Sunday school. So what Moody did is on Sunday morning, he went around town finding every young man who had nothing to do, He'd go up to the boarding houses and he'd find those who were new in town and he would even go to the bar and he'd pull out by their ear the men who were there just to get drunk. And Moody ended up filling four pews with what his pastor would describe in his notes the most ragtag group of people you had ever seen. But Moody never got big-headed about it. He never saw himself as the guy who was getting things done. Moody saw the fact that these people needed the superior wisdom of the gospel of Jesus. Number three. How does God move us from being a self-boasting people to a people of glory in him? Well, he confronts our self-boasting. He reveals his superiority and sovereignty. And then lastly, God calls us to his delights. He calls us to his delights. Go back to our verse, verse 31, and see this phrase, according as it is written. And what we see here is in this phrase, that he that gloried, let him glory in the Lord, is a quote. In fact, it's a quote from Jeremiah 9. There the Bible speaks of God's coming judgment upon his own people, because his own people have not known him. He's going to take away the things that they love, primarily their riches and their, all their security, Because they have failed to know him. And the description in that chapter of failing to know God is the failure to know what he delights in. Instead of delighting in what God delights in, they actually hated what God loved and loved what God hated. God goes on to describe what kind of people they were. They were the kind of people who were deceptive in order to use each other. You can think of a young man who says, I love you, to a girl just to be physically intimate. He said they were the kind of people who would only gather when times were good. They had friendships that only lasted as long as there was mutual benefit. The moment you introduced an inconvenience or trial, they were all about saving themselves. If they had power or influence or any sort of key point of privilege, they were using it to benefit themselves, even if it caused other people to suffer. 
They were the kind of people who replaced doing the right thing with almost doing the right thing. But God's people are supposed to love what God loves. And that's not riches and pleasure, power and glory, savvy and smarts. What God loves, he says in Jeremiah 9, he says, I love steadfast love. The kind of friend who sticks by you when there's no benefit to them. I like equal justice and the idea there is I like those who use their power for the benefit of others. I love those and I love doing the right thing. And when we love what God loves, we know him. Now, how does that move us from boasting in ourselves? Well, think about it this way. How silly it is to brag to have a million dollars in your bank account when you know the God of heaven. How pointless to lie in order to gain some sort of earthly pleasure compared to knowing the God of the universe. Why would you ever brag about being governor after being saved by grace through faith in Christ? And this idea was at the center of Moody's faith and ministry. It was his desire to be the kind of person who says, I'm not going to cancel you even if you offend me or we disagree. This steadfast, loving friendship caused Moody to be an encourager even with men he had great, strong disagreements with. And as a result, Moody had a lot of friends. In the 1890s, there's a list of those who came to see him. And it's a who's who. Andrew Murray, C.T. Studd, Hudson Taylor, C.I. Schofield, R.A. Torrey, Booker T. Washington, and more. Moody lived a charmed life by the 1890s. But every connection he had, he used to help a student or a pastor or a layman grow in their relationship with Christ. Now, you would think somebody who, uh, who had such great influence and who was so important would not find the normal parts of life all that appealing. Yet, the day his first granddaughter was born, he hopped in his buggy went to town and bought a dozen donuts to give to her. And he asked every person he passed, do you know I have a granddaughter now? He brought his donuts to her and then decided to go back home, right through the middle of town, asking everybody, did you know I was a grandpa now? He went to his garden and he found the largest cauliflower he had. Put it in his, his wagon, used it as an excuse to go right back through town, And ask everybody he met, do you know I'm a grandpa now? Here was a man who had spoke to great men and women all around the world. And he was more excited to teach his grandchildren how to do the right thing. For the last years of his life, D.L. Moody moved back to that hillbilly town in Massachusetts. On his deathbed, he told his children and his friends that he... His life's ambition was not to be wealthy or to be famous. His life's ambition was when he died, he would leave them all with something to do. And so he told his children and he told his friends what they were to do after he died, what they were going to take over from the school to his publishing company to all of his sermon notes. 
There was a day came when they thought he was just minutes away from death, but suddenly he rallied, asked to be put in his chair. As soon as he sat there, his strength left him, and he asked to go back to bed. Once in bed, he turned over and apologized to his wife for making her anxious for taking so long to die. And then he passed away minutes later. We have a tendency to look for the best and the brightest. And God used a hillbilly to transform Christianity in America. We have a tendency to think that the only way to success is by our best laid plans. But God chooses the impossible to accomplish the unbelievable. We think we're blessed when life is stable and it's full. And God calls us to be blessed by knowing him. And that is how he moves us from being a self-boasting people to ones that glory in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this example this morning. And I do pray, Lord, that you would confront our self-boasting. And we do pray, Father, you would continue to reveal your sovereignty and your superiority. And I do pray, Father, you would move us to be a people who delight in what you delight in. And we thank you for the life of D.L. Moody and the wonderful influence he has had for your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.